City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. Following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. Paul is warning them, after I'm gone, he said, I want you to know that there will be an attempt from men from the outside and men from the inside trying to corrupt this church. And that's exactly what happened. How it happened, we're not exactly told. Why it took place, we don't know. But we do know that the effect was drastic and devastating to this church at Ephesus. There were men who were serving in the role of elders who were false teachers. Chapter 1 tells us this, and we've gone over this in past times, but it's good to see this. Chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Why? In order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Who were the teachers there? The teachers were the leaders. The teachers were the elders. The teachers were the pastors. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. These men were not proclaiming the gospel. They were proclaiming Twilight Zone type stuff, speculative knowledge, myths and legends, and going back into the Old Testament and trying to build on God's revelation, their own myths and legends. Listening to Verse by Verse featuring in depth Bible teaching by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our series is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 3. The title is God's Standard for Church Leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the heart of 1 Timothy because the leaders of the church in Ephesus were the heart of the problem. Now, some men were occupying the role of elder who were not godly. They were leading the church astray. And these elders are the same ones that Paul addressed back in Acts chapter 20, when he warned them that they needed to be on guard to protect the flock. Now, if you're able to follow in your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 20. But first, Pastor Steve will start in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as we continue learning about biblical church leadership. There are only two times in the New Testament where God lists the specific standards and qualifications for a leader in the church. And that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Now we're studying 1 Timothy 3, and you need to turn there if you haven't already. But here's how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, it means he's not a fighter, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. After this, the apostle goes on to deal with the qualifications for deacons. But in verses 1 through 7, he is dealing specifically with the qualifications for elders in the church or overseers or pastors. 
in the last few times we've studied this, we have dealt with that issue that a pastor, an elder, an overseer, a bishop, any name you want to give to it, a presbyter, all of that really sums up the same office, just dealing with different qualities and different aspects of that office. Now I remind you that this is the heart of the letter. Chapter 3, these particular verses that I've just read, is the heart of 1 Timothy. This is it. This is the heart of it. Because the leaders were the heart of the problem at Ephesus, where Timothy is and Paul is writing to. Some men were occupying the role of elder who were not being godly, who were leading the church astray. And just let me remind you, in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul meets with these elders, this was before this took place, he meets with the godly men who he has discipled, who he has trained, who he has nurtured along, men who have his vision, men who have his heartbeat, men who have his concerns for the sheep at the church at Ephesus. When he meets with them on an island called Miletus, he takes them aside, and he begins to explain to them that he will not be with them any longer. They'll see his face no more, but he's taught them the word of God. He's going, he commends them to the word of God, but he gives them a warning. And the warning is found in verse 28. It starts there. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Paul's concerned about that. He said, you men, watch your own spiritual lives and watch out for the flock. And he explains that in verse 29 and 30. I know, and you could really add there without doing injustice to the text, because I know, this is the reason you're to be on guard, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's going to be men who are going to be like wolves coming in amongst you, and they will not spare the flock. And he's speaking here particularly about leaders. Leaders who will lead the flock astray, because he says in verse 30, and from among your own selves, he's speaking to the elders, he's not speaking to just the congregation, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. So Paul is warning them, after I'm gone, he said, I want you to know that there will be an attempt from men from the outside and men from the inside trying to corrupt this church. And that's exactly what happened. How it happened, we're not exactly told. Why it took place, we don't know. But we do know that the effect was drastic and devastating to this church at Ephesus. There were men who were serving in the role of elders who were false teachers. Chapter 1 tells us this, and we've gone over this in past times, but it's good to see this. Chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Why? In order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Who were the teachers there? The teachers were the leaders. The teachers were the elders. The teachers were the pastors. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. These men were not proclaiming the gospel. They were proclaiming twilight zone type stuff, speculative knowledge, myths and legends, and going back into the Old Testament and trying to build on God's revelation, their own myths and legends. He says in verse 7 that these are those who want to be teachers of the law, the Old Testament law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. These men wanted to be like the esteemed rabbis. And Paul said they don't know what they're talking about, but they are confident. They are dogmatic in their ignorance. But they are those who teach the law and even add to 
the law. So you have that problem going on. When you come to chapter two, you have another problem. These leaders were apparently relinquishing the, the worship service over to women in the church who were preaching and teaching and taking the lead in the service. And so Paul has to deal with that in chapter two. He also deals with the fact that there was an elitist type mentality in this church where they were not praying for the lost. And that's found in chapter 2, where he speaks about praying on behalf of all men, and especially those in civil authorities. And the context here is not that we pray for wisdom for these men. It's not that we just pray that God would give them wisdom and guidance as they make decisions, but that they might be saved. That's the whole context. God desires all men to be saved. That is his desire. That is his heart. And so there was an elitist type attitude that said, we're not interested in the salvation of the lost. We're really not interested in evangelizing. It's just us four, close the door, no more, that type of thing. And those who were in the doors were being taught by women in the worship service, and Paul has to deal with that. In addition to this, they apparently were ascetic. Going back to the Old Testament dietary laws, in chapter 4, verse 3, we read this, there were men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. And so apparently there was a teaching going on there that is more spiritual to not be married, it is more spiritual to not eat certain foods. Some of them apparently were in public disgraceful sin. Chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Context is elders he's talking about. If you look back at verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And what he's really saying is those who continue in sin, deal with them. You don't honor them, them you rebuke before all. Implication being that that was going on at this church. And to top it all off, these men were preaching for monetary gain. Chapter 6, verse 5, Paul writes, And constant friction between men of depraved minds, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. These men were preaching for money and power and prestige and esteem and so forth. That just touches upon the problems that were taking place at Ephesus, and it gives you a feel for this very corrupt church. And the reason they were corrupt is because of the leadership. If the shepherds aren't godly, the sheep won't be either. In the Old Testament, there is a phrase like priests, like people. The people looked at the priests and said, this is the way they are, and this is the way we are going to be. And so if Timothy is ever going to deal with the real problem at Ephesus and ever going to straighten out this church by the grace of God, he must deal with the heart of the matter, and that is the leadership. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul says, Timothy, I'm sending you there to teach people how they ought to behave as a member of God's household. But the point being that you cannot help the household unless you help the leadership of the household. And that's what Timothy specifically is set out to do and Paul is set out to do in chapter 3. So that's what chapter 3 is all about, leadership, qualifications. But I remind you, Timothy was not a pastor. These are called pastoral epistles, but Timothy was not a pastor. He was an apostolic representative. They had pastors before him for about 13 years, maybe a little bit less. But in that time frame, there were pastors who were leading this church. Timothy is sent as Paul's representative to straighten things out. And that's very important because we understand that these qualifications are for ordinary people called elders. No clergy. The Bible doesn't speak of a clergy-laity distinction. These were just men who God had raised up in the congregation to function in the area of elders. These were not men who went off to Bible school or seminary. 
These were not men with clerical collars. These were not men who were called reverends. These were ordinary men who were leaders in the church. There is no distinction between what I do in the pulpit and what our elders are in the heartbeat of this church. He is not referring to just men who serve under the senior pastor. He is referring to those who are leaders in the church. And we've gone over that in the past, but I think we have to just reemphasize that. God wants spiritually qualified men to lead his church. Not men who are elected to church boards because of their money, because of their prestige in the community, because they've been around longer than anybody else, because of their wealth of knowledge, even Bible knowledge, or because of their ability in secular leadership, or because of their eloquence, or any of those things. God is interested in one thing, does the man have the right character? I was talking to a pastor not too long ago who shared with me problems that a church is going through near his city, and this church happens to have an elder system of government. And he said to me, he said, you know, the church is so fed up with what's going on there that they just may chuck the whole elder system. And the more we got to talking about it, we both agreed, and he knows more about the situation certainly than I do, that the problem is not the system, the problem is the men. And this man, who's been in the ministry a number of years longer than I have, said to me, that is always the problem. It is always the problem in leadership. It is not the system, but it is the men. When you have godly men, you'll have a godly church. And that was not the case at this church, but they blamed it on the elder system when the problems were themselves. So as chapter 3 opens up, Paul tells us in verse 1 the significance of church leadership, and then in verses 2 through 7, he deals with the standards for church leadership. Now last time we looked at this, we saw the significance of church leadership, and I really believe that this is so very vital, and that's why I spent a whole message on this. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. It is a trustworthy statement. Now, that is a phrase that introduces a very important doctrinal statement. Five times in the pastoral epistles you find that statement. It is a trustworthy statement, or it is a reliable statement, or it is a faithful statement deserving full acceptance. Sometimes Paul puts it that way. And whenever Paul uses that phrase, what he is saying is the early church recognized certain statements to be creedal statements. They were maxims. They were pithy sayings that became doctrinal statements that were fully endorsed by the church. So whenever you read in First or Second Timothy or Titus, it is a trustworthy statement. Understand that Paul is not making that statement up. What he is doing is simply quoting or reiterating what the early church went around repeating to one another. And so they would go around and say it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. That was something that they said amongst themselves, to encourage themselves, and it was something that was just accepted as vital and as doctrinal and as important. So the significance of church leadership is seen because it is an approved saying. The early church recognized that leadership was vital. We dealt with this last time. And the reason it is vital is because it is an attractive service. It is a good work, Paul says. It is a fine work that a man desires to do if he does desire this. It is not something that ought to be looked down upon. It is a wonderful, attractive, excellent, noble work. And because it is such a noble work, it's a man's a noble kind of a man. A noble work demands a man of noble character. A man called to this good and fine work will have to have a desire in his heart. That's what he says in verse 1. That's how God leads a man through desire. He aspires to it because there is an inward pull at his heart. He says, I can do nothing else. I must do this. It's like Paul saying, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. But that is a subjective sense. That is a subjective calling. 
God doesn't write it in the clouds that you are called to the ministry. And by that, I'm talking about call to leadership in the local church. But he puts it within your heart. But I want you to know that's not enough. It's not enough to just have it in your heart. It's not enough to say, I know God's called me because I have this burning desire in my heart. That is not enough. That is subjective. That is only half of it. There must be objective reality in your life of godliness. And that has to be evaluated by the church. That's why it is absolutely wrong for a young man to be at a Bible college and seminary and never get involved in a local church. Why? Because there is nobody who he's accountable to. There is nobody observing his life on a regular basis. He goes to classes, he's preparing, but there is no local body of believers there evaluating the man. So there must be objective standards to test the man's desire. Anyone can say, I desire it. But the church must step in here and now say, but do you meet the qualifications? And that is the responsibility of the church. And it is our responsibility of the church to hold our leaders accountable to these high standards. And I include myself as well. You are to constantly be evaluating the men in leadership to hold them accountable to the high standards laid down for church leadership. Tonight, we want to begin to look at those standards, and we needed that introduction to bring our thinking up to date. So let's look from the significance of a church leader to the standards for a church leader. And this may surprise you to hear, but I believe there's only one standard, only one qualification to be a leader, only one, and that is found at the beginning of verse 2. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, must be above reproach. That is the sole standard and qualification for a pastor must be above reproach because being an elder is such a noble calling and such a noble work. It must be held by a certain kind of man, a man who is above reproach or as some versions put it, and I like this way of expressing it, blameless, a blameless man. Blamelessness appears to be the overarching qualification for an overseer. All the other items and categories listed in Timothy and also in Titus chapter one seem to be areas of his life in which he must be blameless. In other words, he must be blameless in his marriage. He must be blameless in his social life. He must be blameless in his work. All the other areas simply point back to this one qualification, and that is blamelessness. Now, what is blamelessness? Literally, this word means not to be laid hold of. And the thought is this. There is nothing in this man that would cause an opponent to make a charge against him that would stick. Now, there may be charges made against him. That's inevitable when you're in leadership. I remember speaking to a man on the phone. I look back now, and I think he was drunk when I spoke to him. But he said, aha, I just saw you in a bar. Well, there are qualifications, and there are qualifications. This man made an accusation of that. Obviously, he had the wrong person in mind. So we're not saying that the person can't be blamed. We're saying that when he is blamed, it can't stick. You can't grab him as if he were a criminal to be indicted for what he did. That's the thought. Now, this isn't to say that the person, as I mentioned, will never be blamed for any charge, but that the charge won't stick. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So there are going to be accusations where Paul says don't receive it unless there's some valid witnesses there, because anybody can make an accusation. Now, I want you to understand something very important, and I think some people miss this point. It is vital that we realize that Paul is talking about the man's present spiritual situation, not his past. If you go in a person's past, you're going to find that nobody qualifies. If you look back in anyone's life, 
you would find that no one has been blameless. In fact, if we believe the book of Romans, we know that we're all born in sin, and all we do before we come to Christ is sin. Nobody is blameless. Obviously, we've sinned. In the past, before we were saved, all we did was sin. There was no righteousness in us. Even the benevolent things that we did towards people were simply expressions of look at me type of attitude and look how good I am. That's important. Paul isn't calling us to search back into a man's past and find out what he was like a few years ago. I'll deal more with this next week when we deal with the issue of the husband of one wife. But he is saying, where is the man now? Not what he was then. These are all present realities in his life. Examine him for what he is right now in the present. Not what a man once was, but what he really is now. What he is right now, and that is vital. Now, it is possible that there's something in his past that was never resolved, and it has continuing ramifications in the present, and there's a blight on his character now which would disqualify him. But the point being is, what is he now? No, what was he years ago? If that was the case, no one could ever serve. The basic thought is that an elder must be a man that is free from accusation, one whose conduct can't be called into question. He's to be known for his consistent, mature Christian lifestyle, which gives no occasion for public reproach. Now, we want to be careful at this point, and I really hope you'll understand this. Paul is not saying that you have to be perfect. That would leave everyone out, including myself, top at the list. No one is perfect. There are going to be things that even presently will show up in an elder's life. Things which he does that are wrong and he fails at times and he's insensitive. And there are going to be occasions like that. Obviously, God isn't speaking about perfection. But the point is this, there must not be in his life something that is obvious to everyone. Something that everyone can point to and say, that's out of order. That's always out of order. There can't be a public sin in his life to which everyone points as an ongoing problem. Everybody knows it. It's obvious. There must be no obvious sinful defect in his character, whether it be an attitude or whether it be a habit or whether it be an incident. You see, that's what he's talking about. There should be no obvious defect that just is a reoccurring thing that's characteristic of his life. Yes, there are going to be times where he's insensitive. Yes, there are going to be times where he has to go and apologize. Yes, there are going to be times where he just blows it. He forgets to make a phone call to someone. He forgets to do something. He might even get annoyed at someone. He might have to go and apologize. That's going to happen. What Paul is talking about is there's nothing in his life that the whole congregation knows stinks and he doesn't do anything about it. That's a person who is not blameless. In other words, he is to be an exemplary Christian, a model of Christian maturity so that others who follow him won't be led into sin by his example. That's the whole reason for leadership. As priests, so the people go. People follow the priests, the sheep follow the shepherds. A model. If an elder has a poor marriage, then he's not blameless. And it's an encouragement to the congregation to have low standards in marriage. If an elder isn't gentle, he's not blameless. And it's an encouragement to the congregation to be arrogant and not gentle. I'm sure you've visited, perhaps on your vacation, or you've been in churches or so, where you come in there and you just get a feel that people are nasty, they're mean, they want to fight everybody. And you say, I wonder why. And then you meet the pastor. And you know why. Or you meet the deacons. You know why. They're just reflecting him or them. If an elder doesn't keep his children under control with dignity, then just say under control, it says with dignity, he's not blameless. If an elder has an ego problem that's obvious to everybody, he's not blameless. 
If he has a contentious spirit, the people will have that too. If he isn't hospitable, the people will be cold and unfriendly. If he's on an ego trip, the people will be arrogant and proud too. And you see, that's what Paul is dealing with. And that's why they were having such problems at Ephesus, because they obviously were following their leaders who were corrupting them. As Pastor Steve was coming to the end of today's teaching, he highlighted some very important points. It is important that we realize that Paul is talking about the pastor's present spiritual situation, not his past. If you go at a person's past, you're going to find that nobody qualifies. So we are to examine him for who and what he is right now in the present. The basic thought is that an elder must be a man that is free from accusation, one whose conduct can't be called into question, someone known for his consistent, mature Christian lifestyle, which gives no occasion for public reproach. You know, I think it is important to remember those points, especially in today's highly politicized culture where people dig deep into someone's past in order to smear them. If you would like to listen to any of these verse-by-verse programs again, we would encourage you to sign up for the Verse-by-Verse podcast at versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org.